Hey guys, Brandon here. We'll get you to the show in just a second. And if you want to listen to that 90s baseball pod early and ad-free, make sure to sign up at patreon.com slash that 90s baseball pod. Subscribers at any level get the show as soon as it's created, early and ad-free. Now, for our sponsors, we have eParade, which is reasonably priced, trendy kitchenware. That's E-P-A-R-E dot com. Promo code 10, T90BP10. So, that 90s baseball pod, T90BP, with 10 on either side. Symbol.app, that's S-I-M-B-U-L-L dot app, is the stock market for sports. If you use the promo code BENDER, you get a free week of Symbol Gold. Hinterland Coffee in Minnesota is a freshly roasted coffee experience every single week. Monthly subscriptions get 10% off. Go to hinterlandmn.com. Three-star sports cards, you can find them online or in person in Bloomington on Lindale Avenue or in Little Canada on Rice Street or threestarsportscards.com. And finally, Humility Chains. Royce Lewis's mom, Cindy, makes stylish, affordable chains and necklaces and bracelets that go, uh, the proceeds go directly to the Nigu Foundation to help children fighting cancer. So a portion, again, of those proceeds go to the Nigu Foundation to help children fighting cancer cancer more than 20 styles of chains and bracelets are available they're affordable they look great i'm wearing mine right now i highly recommend them it's humility chains on etsy so look up etsy and then search for humility chains and now on to your show Again, it is that 90s baseball pod powered by Access Twins. I'm your host, Brandon Warren, and you can find me on Twitter at Brandon underscore W-A-R-N-E. And joining me, as always, is Greg Olson. You can find him on Twitter at G-R-E-G-G-O-L-S-O-N 30. Greg, did you have a good Thanksgiving? I did. How about yourself? Not too bad. Went up to Fargo. It was three degrees the morning we woke up on Thursday, so that was uh, that was pretty cool. Um, is, it just, is it just like the movie? Yeah, basically, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's exactly like that. Yeah, hey. um, uh, a guy who I'm sure does not miss Minnesota weather, uh, although he probably didn't have to deal with it too much because he played in the Metrodome, is Matt Walbeck, former Twins catcher, former big league catcher for a number of teams and a number of seasons. Matt, how are we doing? Doing great, Brandon. Thanks for having me, Greg. Good to see well, you. Welcome, Matt. Nice to see you as well. Yeah, we're excited to have uh, anytime we can have a guest is fun for us because it takes the pressure off Greg and me from having to be very interesting. And I feel like other than relievers, uh, catchers have some of the best personalities or coolest personalities in baseball. And that's not just a now thing. It's been for a long time. My, my personal favorite, and I'll be honest with you, 
I've had really good rapports with twins backup catchers the last few years. So um, Chris Jimenez and Bobby Wilson, even Mitch Garver for a while there when he was backing up Jason Castro. Um, you guys just see the game a different way. And I think it's a lot of fun. You know, you're the only ones on the field facing that direction uh, and wearing a uniform, you know, the umpires too. But uh, it, it's just, it's fun to me to hear how catchers see the game. And two, um, I'd like to hear about what you're doing right now, because I understand you're, you're not, uh, you're not out of the catching game, so to speak. Well, no, I mean, I'm actually still playing men's league baseball. I'm in the nice. off season right now. So yeah, I'm playing in a 50 and over league here in Sacramento. Uh, really? and yes, yeah. MSBL. It, it was, it's a good time. So it keeps me in shape. And then, you know, I had, uh, after I retired from the pro game in 2011, I started my own baseball Academy and started doing lessons and it grew into, uh, more of a following. And then, uh, built a partnership, business partnership with a guy named Glenn Gross, and he started running teams, and that turned into a, a larger uh, form of instruction, and then we got a, a facility and built that up pretty good, and then when COVID hit, things certainly slowed down, so um, we've been building some software in the background to sort of uh, assess players, so being able to give them objective measurements, um, so we ended up closing the, the brick and mortar and we've moved on to uh, an online training system. I have a, an app called GoWallbeck.com. It's a web-based app uh, with hundreds of videos and, and drop-down menus for playlists and, and things like that uh, for coaches and players and parents. And so that's been going really well. And I'm still working with a group of uh, players on Zoom through an invite-only basis and group training sessions. It's age-appropriate and or age-similar and season-appropriate drills. Uh, married with three kids. Uh, my oldest son is uh, out of college. He's working for Cisco in San Jose. I've got a daughter at University of Oklahoma. She's a sophomore and a freshman daughter here. And uh, so things are going well, just doing the best I can and still love baseball. Speaking of college, Mr. Olson, did I see someone's, uh, someone's got a commit in their house right now? Yeah, my youngest is uh, coming to Auburn. Nice. All right. Yeah, committed a couple of years ago and they had him make uh, made his own video so it's pretty good it was wow. uh he's uh unique in uh, a little bit of a marcus stroman so you get a chance to see ryan olson somewhere on facebook or something matt it's a uh, couple of leg kicks i wouldn't recommend a little bit of louis <laughs> Tiant, and then he did a bronson arroyo full straight on leg kick so entertaining how about his curveball does he have the nasty hammer um, like I'm dad? To, yeah, I'm trying to get him to back off the velocity on it so it spins. It's just, you know, mm. everybody wants to throw everything hard. And it's like them going, this is not a high velocity pitch. Mm. We can make it into one, but you got to start backwards and then work forward. And so still working. How does he hold it? How, how did you hold your curveball and how does he hold his curveball? Um, I held, uh, you know, it's funny because I, 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 I'll talk to, you know, the Auburn baseball team every once in a while and it'll be like, Nobody can tell you what grip is right. You know, if something fits with you, it's yours. It's this whole thing is your thing. So I'm going to show you a bunch of grips. And if you don't like any of them, go do whatever you want. I'm going to give you suggestions. And so um, my fingers, you know, I, I would be wrapped around the horseshoe a little bit on the, on the edge just so it was kind of hooked. And then the next week, my finger would feel fat. So then I'd roll it to the other side of the horseshoe wow. and just kind of rotate it. And that, that would feel good. And then somewhere around 93, I went against all uh, conventional wisdom and went right on the horseshoe and hooked around it. Mm -hmm. And went, and, you know, 
you're supposed to use the horseshoe to create the four seams and get more more bite but i actually had a better feel better fit you know completely hooking the horseshoe interesting and yeah um, i faced you a couple times and it was man that thing was it was tough you could sit on it and still not hit it you know <laughs> yeah we like, pulled we pulled the numbers for that 0 for 4 with a strikeout but um yeah you know it yeah. takes uh, it, there's about 200 guys who faced only at least four times so i don't think it's uh, unusual for someone to have struck out against him he was pretty nasty he was tough he, he was tough he had good angle and uh you know the mound presence too so there's a lot that goes into that now competition when you're facing guys like Oli. right now you mentioned one of your kids is at oklahoma how are they handling the uh the lincoln riley news <laughs> yeah no i know we were kind not of great. shocked to hear about that yeah not great uh we were shocked to hear about that i guess he's taking rattler with him is that true i don't know if there's any uh, he's in the that. portal yeah every time i think of the transfer portal i think of that scene in Spaceballs where the guy gets beamed down and his head's on backwards so i always think mm -hmm. of players going into the transfer portal like that because my brain is broken and so um yeah no there's I think, i'd say there's a decent chance rattler ends up with him but um yeah the carousel right now is crazy with uh, Brian Kelly leaving Notre Dame and all that. Um, you know, obviously we're not here to talk about college football, but they're about to join the, uh, Oklahoma's about to join the SEC, join all these guys, aren't they? Yep, yep, yep. in a so, couple of years, I think. Yeah, it sounded like Riley didn't want 25, I think. Yeah. yeah, yeah, something like that, maybe three years. Yeah, so Matt, that's, this is normally what we get. Brandon will say something and then he'll, he'll reference an old movie and, and, you know, the only people that have watched it are me and him and, you know, now right. you. Or that's okay. Or you will bring up a baseball or any movie that anyone should have seen that I haven't seen, like let's say uh, a few good men or Major Field League. Field of, I've seen Field of Dreams. No, 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 no. That's that's false advertising. I haven't seen Major League. I've seen Field of Dreams. You haven't seen For the Love of the Game either. This that's is this is one. probably when Matt's just going to disconnect and realize that this is not <laughs> up his alley. But um, no, that's no, that's perfect. This is what I usually deal with, Matt. How do you feel about Gus in uh, For the Love of the Game? Jeez, <laughs> I mean, are we gonna? I don't know. <laughs> I like for love of the game. That was uh, my favorite scene in that movie was when he turned off the mechanism, uh -huh. right? Yeah. And you remember? Did you ever get that feeling? I mean, especially when you're playing at Yankee Stadium. I can think back to times when Rivera was on the mound and the place was just a, a roar. And then all of a sudden, you just stop hearing things. You know, I I kind of miss that. So you were the same one. The same way at the plate, yeah, or behind the plate, uh, you could, you would just, your fight or flight or some sort of response would hit and uh, you just wouldn't hear anything. And it would just become, you know, you'd have to just trust your practice and just, uh, you know, one pitch at a time and you just kind of react. You know, I'm sure it was different as a pitcher where you had to go through your, your delivery, whereas a hitter or a catcher, it's kind of a, it's sort of a reaction, you know. Yeah. No, I, uh, I never, you know, never had to clear the mechanism, but, you know, friends would say, okay, you know, you're playing in front of Yankee Stadium, there's 55,000 people, what, you know, how loud is it? And I was like, I don't hear anything. Yeah. I was like, if I got to Montreal and there's 2,000 people and the exactly. one who dug out has got my phone number and all my kids' names. <laughs> yeah. I heard every word he said, and I was about to throw a dot off of him, but 55,000 people, you don't hear anything. And for me, it was, I was always just, I had one checkpoint, and then it, it was time to go, you know? So I'd come yeah. up, I'd have a little bit of a tap on the elbow with my, my left leg. Mm. And that was my, uh, my checkpoint to get to. And I knew I was gonna be on time after that. You just gotta trust it and let it go. That's funny. Um, 
So I want, I, I, I kind of wanted, I did, I didn't mean to throw the Gus, you know, from the, uh, <laughs> but your <laughs> presence when you, you know, when you were in the game and you brought this intelligence factor um, as a partner, how much detail did you go into pregame hitter versus pitcher or just did you kind of stay on what the book was on each hitter? Well, you know, it depended. A lot of it depends on the pitcher. And I think that's what kept me around for as long as, as I, I played was working with like a Jack McDowell, for example, when I was catching Jack, he, uh, he was a one pitch at a time guy. And he didn't necessarily want to hear too much about what the hitter's strengths were. He wanted to focus more on reading swings. And so for that, for catching Jack, it was pretty simple. If the guy was late, we'd stay hard. If he was out in front, we'd stay soft. I mean, there was no secret. He had the split, a breaking ball, and a fastball. And so we just kind of read swings. When I was catching Tim Belcher, it was totally different. I mean, he was carrying around a laptop when they first came out in the late 90s. And um, he'd keep spreadsheets. And, and he would, before the game, he would put a spreadsheet and notes on my chair. And um, he had listed out every batter in the, in the lineup one of three ways that we were going to pitch him. And he was either pounding, splitting guys. He was going to make them reach. And then he had another guy where he might just mix it up altogether. But it was very simple. And I kept thinking to myself, I'm like, damn, man, if, uh, if, if these guys ever knew how you were pitching them, it would, but still he committed to what he was pitching and what he was throwing. And then Randy Myers, he was fastball away. That is it. And he goes, and I don't ever want to see you without your half of your body off the plate. So it just, I didn't believe in, in attacking, focusing so much on the hitter as I, man, I wanted to work with the pitcher and make sure that whatever they threw, they threw with commitment and getting that pitcher to believe in what I was putting down had purpose. And so a lot of the scouting reports and things like that, I mean, of course you, you would, you'd have to do certain things like with Frank Thomas. Um, I mean, we all knew he, if you pounded him inside, he was an out and he was one of the best breaking ball hitters. I don't know how you did against him uh, with your curveball, but man, I tell you what, as soon as you thought you had him set up for a breaking ball, it was just blasted. Um, so there were certain guys you knew in the league. It's fun to talk to you about, you know, how you used to face guys, but like Edgar Martinez, uh, uh, his kryptonite was that front door slider. You know, if you could just throw him front door sliders and fastballs down the middle, we would, I'd say, and I'd raise my hand in the meeting and go, hey, this guy is going to wear you out if you try to pitch to him. You've got to throw him something he's not looking for down the middle and front door sliders. And sure enough, man, we'd throw him just 87 mile an hour heaters down the middle and he'd pop it up. Ground. It was almost like he didn't know what to do with it. Same thing with Ichiro in his early in his career. It was the same thing. I mean, he'd fight you for 14 pitches, which is what you'd want to throw to get out of an inning. And then screw it, man. Just just let him make him hit it first pitch. And it was almost like those guys wouldn't know how to do things. And then you'd face some guy that just came up from double A and, you know, he'd just be all over, you know, you wouldn't know how to pitch certain guys. So I don't know. I think too much thinking and long winded answer here is not good. And that's like when I see these catchers with their wristbands and, and all this stepping off and, and all this bullshit with they're trying to just make this game so damn difficult. It just, it's, it's difficult as it is just there's still a certain way to, to attack hitters. And, you know, I think the simpler we make it, the more enjoyable it is too. How, how long, so you, as a guy who moved around a little bit, like how long did it take before you 
were on one team and you felt like you had a pretty good grasp of that team's pitchers because you mentioned what Randy Myers liked and you mentioned what Tim Belcher liked and to remember all that and index all that in your mind has to take time and it has to be a, a development of relationships. And I think a lot of times we forget it's a relationship business. It's a relationship game. Are you ever comfortable with where you're at in that relationship? Or is, um, you know, you look at, you know, if we're on baseball reference, a team will have 25 pitchers in a year just because of the churn of the game. Is it just a constant stream of, uh, I'm learning all these guys and continuing to learn, or do you ever get comfortable with some guys or on some team at some point in your first season there? Well, as a professional, you have to, I wouldn't have been there had I not been able to immediately adapt to each pitcher. And so you have to, that's why I think sitting next to them in the dugout, asking them questions like, Hey, when do you like me to move with a runner on second? What kind of target do you like? You know, how, and, and I would even have things that I wouldn't tell them that I knew that they liked, like how I threw the ball back to them or how, how long I would hold the ball before I threw it back to them. Or if I go out and talk to them, sometimes I would yell at guys and cuss at them or, or not say anything. My favorite visits are when I go out there and just stare at them and just look at them and what, go, nothing. And I turn around and walk back just to shake them up and get them in there. Um, it wasn't until I, I caught and, or played for Mike Sosha in uh, Anaheim. Uh, that I really learned how to to relate to pitchers and call a game and, um, you know, taking down notes. And I think if the pitcher knows that you truly do care about them and you're there to serve them, um, they're going to open up to you and give you uh, more of who they are as a person um, in a trust way that becomes sort of a, a brotherhood. And um, and once they know that, like they're they'll they'll do anything. And that's where you have to earn that trust. It just takes time. And I was able to earn trust, you know, especially when pitchers would block balls. I, did, I didn't give a shit what the score was. I was knocking right. it down. I was doing what right. I could to save that guy's runs. I didn't care about anything except my pitcher. Yeah. And once, and like if, if we had to hit a guy that I never <laughs> once had a batter get out to uh, the pitcher's mound, we hit Albert Bell one time Ooh. and he didn't want to go to first base. I remember that we were in Baltimore and he had three home runs in that game. He hit, he took Chuck Finley deep, uh, Mike Holtz, Troy Percival Woo. to tie it in the ninth. Yeah, wow. he hit a two run bomb. He hit a two run bomb with two outs in the ninth, I believe. And then Shigatoshi Hasegawa came up with the runner on first. Didn't have to tell him, boom, drilled him. You yep. know, what I mean, it's like, no, man, why we didn't walk him, I don't know. But, uh, but there was a runner on first. And so Shiggy didn't mess around. He threw one right up here and, and just nailed him. And, Albert just stood there. He says, I'm not going to first. And he turns to me and he goes, Hey, you go out there and you tell that motherfucker to throw me something I can hit. I'm like, <laughs> dude. And so now I realize I'm like, well, you know, he, uh, he's a very intelligent man. Albert is. Yes, and he is. Apparently he, he would do like the New York times crossword puzzles and, and he was very intelligent. So I kind of said, Hey, look, I, I speak a little Spanish, but I don't speak Japanese. You know, I don't know if he'll understand me. And that kind of shook him up a little bit. It kind of gave him a second. And then by then the manager and the pitching coach came out mm -hmm. and they kind of settled him down a little bit. And then uh, he finally reluctantly <laughs> went to first base and uh, and then Cal Ripken came up and got a hit a walk-off single. And that of was course it. Did. Um, let me ask you this. What was it like being a catcher, playing for a catcher like Sosha? Because, um, you know, from my point of view, we see a lot of catchers become managers and then, we also start thinking about like future managerial candidates as catchers and kind of tying those things together. But was that an, an especially eye-opening experience for you to play 
as a veteran catcher for a guy who caught as long as he did, because obviously then too, he managed for as long as he did. Lifers like that have a lot to say even before they're catchers. What was it like to be a catcher playing for a catcher? Oh, it was great. It was awesome. I mean, I always looked up to Mike uh, as a, as a younger little leaguer and um, I had the utmost respect for him and he taught me and Benji Molina, Benji Molina came in that year as a rookie and I right. kind of yeah. took him under my wing. And that was my first year of really being a, a true backup to a guy. And uh, he just taught me stuff that he learned from Johnny Roseboro and um, all the history from the Dodgers that he had accumulated all that knowledge and uh, shared it with me. And it was just, it was amazing. The only thing that I didn't like that he wanted me to do was take my body and sit on home plate when the guys were trying to score. Yeah. I didn't like that. Um, I, I wouldn't bail out from collisions at home plate, but I I like to do more of a sort of a judo approach where they come in and I'd like roll with them or I'd show them the plate and then I'd take it away, but not so she wanted to have a sit on the plate. In fact, he'd have Mickey Hatcher uh, run us over as part of a, a, you know, catching training. And, uh, you know, we'd have to practice laying on the plate or, you know, kneeling on it, and getting rolled over by Mickey Hatcher. But no, overall, it was a fantastic experience, you know, and um, just an honor to play for him. I feel like Benji Molina is better built for those kind of collisions than you back in those days. Yeah, for sure. I was a lightweight back in the day. Yeah, yeah. 185, 190. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying you aren't, aren't still, but yeah, back in those days behind the plate, they had some guys mm-hmm. that could, could really go. Um, yeah. What, uh, so you get, you get, we don't stick strictly to the nineties. You were drafted in the eighties. So we're going to talk about that for a second here. Mm-hmm. Um, Cubbies. How do, how do you get on the radar of the Cubbies? And again, to you debut for them uh, you know, six, seven years later before you're traded to the twins. But um, you know, that's a storied franchise that was going through some stuff and uh, you end up on their radar. How does that happen? So I was drafted in 87 in the eighth round and I signed out of high school and um, my third year in pro ball, I was in Peoria playing for the chiefs in the Midwest league. We were in Cedar Rapids. Jeff Branson was on second base. And um, I think Eddie Tobinsey hit a ball through the right side. Branson comes around third. I'm deacon him. I'm pretending like there's not going to be a play at the plate. Big mistake. And I'm just kind of standing there and I catch the ball and I step back with my left foot with my toe pointed towards right center and Brano just crushes me and blows out my ACL and my MCL. He feels Mm -hmm. terrible. I'm telling him, dude, that was my fault. You know, I screwed up. And um, so during the time it took me to rehab my knee, I asked the Cubs if I could practice switch hitting because I wanted to come back as a switch hitter instead Mm -hmm. of a wounded catcher. And they're like, yeah, Yeah. sure, go for it. So I started switch hitting and um, it it clicked, you know, it didn't click until I talked to Bill Harford and I kind of wanted to give it up. And he told me, just don't focus on the result. Just focus on getting through the season, do the best you can. And then we'll reassess it. That was an A ball in the Carolina league in 91 In 92. I went to Charlotte played in the Southern league. I was an all-star. I hit 300 yeah. and then got put on the 40 man. Cause Girardi wasn't protected. And the Rockies picked him up on, in the, uh, expansion draft yep and uh so i got to go to spring training in 93 and uh, ryan sandberg had an arm injury broke his arm got hit by a pitch i think or sliding or something opened up an extra spot on the team and they're like hey we're going to carry a third catcher congratulations you know in spring training so it was rick wilkins steve blake and myself mm-hmm. and um you know so i got on the radar there and had a pretty good year um i got sent down a month later to triple a got called back up and you know, just good fortune, uh, timing with the, with the rule fight, you know, the expansion draft, I think when the Marlins and the Rockies came in, I think it, I don't know if I would have had a chance otherwise. And, um, you know, then going to Minnesota and from there on, you know, I just chipped away. Wilkins had one of the most amazing one-off 
seasons I think we've seen from a catcher. I'm trying to think of who else even compares, maybe a Todd Hundley, but that 1993 season for Rick Wilkins was incredible. And you got to yeah. see at least some of it up close and personal. Yeah, he was, uh, he was a stud. I mean, he hit 30 bombs that year, I think. Sammy Sosa was on that team also. He was 30-30. Of course, you got McGuire, or excuse me, uh, Gracie. Yep. And, um, you know, Sean Dunstan. So it was a good team. And, you know, Wilkie had a good year that year. After that, you know, he had, I think, an injury. And, uh, you know, this game will spit you out in a hurry. You know, what's it like? Really what's it, it'll humble you. What's it like debuting at Wrigley? Because I didn't go to Wrigley until I was uh, 30. I was 32 before I ever even saw Wrigley. It's got to be pretty impressive as a 20 something, knowing all the history that's happened at that point in that stadium. And, then again, too, when I was in there, I was I was equally parts like overwhelmed and then like underwhelmed. Like this is this is Wrigley. This is the Wrigley everybody talks about. But at the same time, like, holy crap, this is still awesome. Yeah, no, it was like church. And um, yeah. I was there in the beginning of the season. The Ivy wasn't quite on the wall yet. My first day in the big leagues, I was staying at the hotel at the Westin <laughs> and took a cab to Wrigley. I was thinking I was going to be right on time. I was early. I was like, two and a half hours early and Yosh Kawano, the clubhouse guy just aired me out. I couldn't believe it. I don't know if you've heard of Yosh Kawano, but he was just this amazing guy, a clubhouse attendant had been in the game since Babe Ruth literally has a picture with Babe Ruth. He's got this little Gilligan's Island hat, a big fat cigar. He's about five, two. And he goes, what the hell are you doing here so early? I said, I'm getting ready for the game. He goes, get out of here. Don't, I, don't let me see you. You're here too early as a rookie. I was like, okay. So, but uh, yeah. So third day I got to play against, and uh, we were facing Avery and the Braves, you know, yep. it was back when yep. they were super good. And I ended up, you know, getting a swing and bunt hit my, my uh, third at bat or fourth at bat. Yeah. And it was, uh, but it was, I remember screaming when I went out to the field, when they said, you know, here come the Chicago Cubs, it was cold. And um, I mean, gosh, getting to play for the Cubs, it was like, you're a celebrity superstar anywhere you go there. I mean, I, I was just breaking out my old Murphy's uh, Letterman jacket. So after my first home run against the Phillies, the guys took me across the street to the bar over there, Murphy's, and the owner handed me a Letterman jacket. And, you know, they just really, being a Cubs, there's nothing like it. Wow. Did, did either of you guys deal with Wayne Hathaway when you were with the Twins? I did. Yeah. yeah does, I was going to say, yeah. you explaining Yosh sounds a little bit to me like big fella with the Twins. Yeah. Oli, do you know him? No, I don't. Oh man, you missed. Yeah, that. he was. He was. He was a personality. He's like a cartoon character. Great big mustache, coke bottle glasses that were tinted, and um, it's like if Yosemite just, Sam had an illegitimate brother. Sam. Yeah, 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 yeah. He was a beauty. He'd let you know too. He would. He'd kind of give you shit if you weren't doing it right. You know, playing right. <laughs> like coming from a clubby. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't blame me. Don't blame yourself. Blame the scout who signed you, Biggie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's exactly what he said. He he passed away a couple yeah. years ago, but he was. Uh, yeah unbelievable Legends. yeah so th i just love though like that the that the game has that that kind of character in it and so every time i hear somebody bring up that i have to really relate to who i've seen here in minnesota and um you know big fellas uh big fellas path is, is well worn I can't, I can't get over the fact that you got kicked out of the clubhouse because you were there too hmm. early yeah he wanted to kick he well i refused to leave i like went around the corner and hid from him uh, but yeah he he warned me don't ever do that again yep. I, that happened to me at Wrigley Field too, but for a different reason. Um, so I covered a, a series at Wrigley for the first time in 2018. 
it was that crazy. It was like 100 and some degrees, and all the guys were dropping like flies. Williams Estadio and Logan Morrison had to play in the outfield because all these guys were getting sick with heat-related illnesses. Um, and for the, the first game, I had to figure out where the clubhouse access was. And for someone who's never been to Wrigley, you know, there's the catwalk to get up to the press box. And you go down a, a hallway, and then you cut across and go up into the clubhouse for the visitor clubhouse. I don't know where all this stuff is. So I'm asking stadium workers and they're like, Oh, I think it's over there. So I go down the steps and I'm like, Oh, finally, I'm at the front door of the clubhouse, like target field, which has a front door where everybody goes in. And the guy goes, what are you doing here? And I'm like, um, just, you know, clubhouse availability. And I look over and Randy Rosario who played for the twins walks up, shows the guy his ID and goes in. They'd sent me to the player's entrance. I wound up wow. at the players' entrance at Wrigley Field, and I was just like, "You've got to be kidding me!" So mm-hmm. I, I had my own experience with uh, showing up to the wrong place at, at the wrong time <laughs> at Wrigley Field. All right, Matt, you got you got to have uh, a TK story or two. <laughs> yeah, I've got quite a few. Um, he wasn't too fond of uh, of rookies. No. You know what I mean? So one time he had me out there early because I wasn't hitting well, and was just giving me the business all the way down those stairs. Remember, we'd have to go up and down those stairs at the Metrodome and it mm-hmm. took forever and he's carrying the bucket. He's like, I can't believe I have to do this. And so he's got me out there right before we stretch and he puts the bucket down and the tee down and he wants me to start lifting my leg and try to hit like Kirby pocket. And man, he gets frustrated and just ends up kind of ugly where, you know, he says, kind of gives me a little shove and says, you're not balanced, get out of here, you know, so. A lot of times he'd give you that stuff, but, you know, hard on the rookies. A lot of the time, most of the time we deserved it. Um, but as far as the way he managed, you know, you can't say enough about how well he would handle his bullpen. I mean, you even look at like an Eddie Gordado who had all those appearances, but still stayed strong. He really knew his players. He knew how to, uh, to put them in a situation where they would succeed, but he was getting frustrated fully towards the end of, of that. We were, we were kind of, not very good. And so he struggled, I think, with with all of that, considering he'd just come off two World Series wins. Yeah. Uh, what about you? You got any stories? I was there. Uh, I had I was there for about a month and a half in 97. It was just uh, I'd gotten my mechanics screwed up. So I was awful. End up end up going to Kansas City. But we got uh, 98 with the uh, franchise Diamondbacks opening up. We got Brent Brady and Damian Damian Miller and Brady. Yeah. <laughs> Both of them were rookies, so they were just terrified of TK. And all I could do is listen to their stories and just start laughing. It was Brent Brady said one that he um, gets the start, swings and misses, falls down on a knee, and gets back to the dugout and just head, you know, head dropped and just wants to disappear. And he said TK stops him at the top of the dugout and looks at me, goes, "Are you having any fun?" And Brent Brady looks at me, goes, "No, sir." And he goes. Son, you are not a whole lot of fun to watch. <laughs> yeah. And that was it. And it was just like, yeah. I, I mean, I couldn't imagine. I was with him in 97, so I had like eight years in. And I laughed at him one time when he had his whole body in, wrapped in ice in spring training after throwing like an hour of BP. And he's like, what the hell are you laughing at? And I went, not good, not good. I got, I'm, I'm bailing out. Nothing, yeah. sir. Uh, legend yeah. has it he used to wash the laundry for the Minnesota Timberwolves back in like 89 when uh, their their inaugural season they played both at the Metrodome and he just kind of took it upon himself to wash their laundry like it was just the kind of guy he was he was 
It was like he was the manager of a World Series winner two years before, and he's doing odd jobs for a fledgling NBA franchise two years after that. Wow, I had not heard that story. Yeah, he's yeah. an eccentric character. You know, he would have his Zubas on yep. and the cigar going, and um, and he used to just puff down those cigars constantly. And, yeah, just old school all the way. But, uh, you know, I think he had a little bit of a chip on his shoulder, too, because he, he – kind of sniffed the big leagues a little bit, but didn't really get, you know, get much playing time. And, um, you know, being a young manager uh, and then having all that success, I mean, he had a lot going on. So, but an interesting guy, certainly a, a baseball guy for sure. Uh, baseball what, guys are generally kind of weird, you know? Yeah. What, what, what was it like replacing Brian Harper? Because if, if people are listening to this show and not with a Minnesota tinge to it, probably be like Brian Harper, who gives a crap about Brian Harper, but um, kind of a cult hero and, you know, caught in the 91 world series for that team. And, and in fact, actually was on the, the Brewers team that you guys know hit early in 94. But the, the idea that I'm going for here is you guys had to replace kind of a guy who was an institution in Minnesota. And, and mm-hmm. in fact, on the back of your card that I found a 90, I think it's a 95 score that I'm showing to the camera here. It actually mentions that you guys had, um, rookie catching duo you and Derek Parks in 94 which is super rare you talk about TK not being super fond of rookies uh that had to be kind of a tumultuous season for you well you know in more ways than one as far as the Brian Harper legend goes uh you can't replace that he's irreplaceable in my opinion and so I, I had that attitude and the fans were good to me and the media was great. I mean, there was no issues there as far as that. I just kind of played the game the way I was supposed to play. It was tumultuous in the fact that we were getting ready to go on strike as well. And the fact that we had kind of a a losing record and um, yeah. And Derek Parks was a rookie as well. And so I don't know. I mean, I think you ask any big leaguer and they'll, they'll just tell you, just, you just play the game, do the best you can. You try to play it one pitch at a time. And um and that's it. And you just, that's all you can do. And I was fortunate enough to have the built-in training to uh, kind of get over one, the last game and move on to the next one and, and play it one pitch at a time. You got to have a short, a short memory, you know, for certain things. And, uh, but the strike was tough. Well, you remember that, right? I mean, that was kind of an interesting time. How did they, uh, how did they treat you guys in Minnesota? I heard, um, was it the Reds got left and wherever they were playing at? I think Cincinnati got left. We, you know, we were on the road in Denver. I was with the Braves in '94. Wow, um, sounds like classic March shot. Well, yeah, they at least flew us back to Atlanta, and we got off, and they're like, you know, you can't go in to get any of your stuff. So, wow, I did not hear. I've never heard those stories. Yeah, and then since I heard Cincinnati got left completely wherever they were playing, so hypothetically, they're you know, they're playing in. I don't know. Let's just say uh, Houston. They got left there. Man, no. I think we were at home, and and uh, that was just it, and everything was over. It was bizarre. It was bizarre, and then even in spring training, and then you know you you have you hear about these guys that cross the line, and the owners are going to try and start this new league with scab players or replacement players, and and that became ugly. And then you know trying to get the game back to where the fans liked us again. You know, it just kind of all was. That, you know, when you and I play, that's just what we had to deal with. And then all the steroids and all that stuff. It was an interesting yeah. time. So you were sec- you were going into your second year in 95. So you had a job. You had a place to go. I was, I was a free agent. So I signed with the Indians minor league. And so I'm in camp and the scabs are on the big field and, and you know, 
in Winter Haven. And, you know, people are looking at me and I'm like, oh, I ain't crossing. I was like, going, oh, this, thing's, this thing's going to end in, in, you know, May 1st or whatever. I'm not going to get a job until June. I was like, I might as well get a job now and just, you know, sit around here and wait and be playing minor league baseball until something opens up because minor league. Were they asking you, did they, did, did anybody approach you and ask you to cross? They did not. I mean, I ended up playing with three, four, five guys later on and man, it was still fresh in everybody's mind. We had a couple guys in Kansas city and one mm -hmm. of them is still doing the, the radio and man, it was, mm -hmm. they were the plague. Nobody. Yeah. Nothing, no dinner, no nothing. Just stay mm -hmm. over there. Don't talk to me. It was yeah. brutal. Do you guys have any? Um, we did. I did. I had one. And um, I didn't actually know that the guy had been a scab player and became friends with him before I found out. And so <laughs> what am I going to do? You know, <laughs> so it's tough, you know, so you just never know. And um, but still, there's a, there's a bad taste, I think, from a lot of guys. And you hear the stories about the players that crossed and some of them didn't have a choice or whatever. I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say, but they're certainly in the minority from the guys that held out. But I just remember going to the meetings in Arizona and, you know, all the players getting together and talking about it. Where, where did you, did you go to the one in Arizona when we all got together? Was there another part that you went maybe in the South somewhere? Where are you from? Uh, I was in Baltimore at that time. Um, I grew up in Nebraska, but had moved to Baltimore early in my career. Uh, I think we, I thought we had something maybe in DC. Seems okay. Like we, had, we had a big meeting with some big dudes and went out to dinner. It was like Cone, Bonilla, Ripken, um, and just I caught up with that. But you know, it wasn't. Uh, I don't remember too much about what was going on during the time. I was just shocked that World Series had ended. Yeah. And we weren't. We weren't. You know, we weren't getting anything resolved until who knew when. You know, and we were the bad guys because we were making money, but. You know, all, all you could do is explain, hey, the owners haven't ever opened up their real books. So nobody knows what they're making. And it's like, you know, how do you argue with us? It's not our fault. But right. Is what it is. Let's uh, yeah, I, I got one for you. Mm hmm. Um, golly, it's been about 10 years. I wrote a book on major leaguers, favorite baseball stories. Oh, wow. You know, so we're sitting around. You and I are having a beer somewhere catching up what's what's one of your favorite go-to on field off field because we we played in the era of no cell phone so we could be whoever we were got one yeah um my i mean i think one of my favorite memories was when i was playing for the phillies in 2001 and i had to go back to the minor leagues in in that season after being in the big leagues for seven years straight started the season with the Reds, went to Louisville, and then I got traded to the Phillies, went to Scranton, got called up in September. And I'd been on the roster for about a month and hadn't gotten in at bat yet. And so I was starting to sweat it because the season was coming close to an end. We 9-11 had just passed and my wife's due with our second child. So I might have to peel out, uh, and I run down to the dugout, we're getting our asses kicked in Florida. And I tell Larry Bo, I, well, I ask him, I kind of tell him, hey, can you get me in there? And he goes, why is your wife having the baby? I'm like, with a smart axe response, I'm like, well, no, but I go, I, I really want to get in the game, you know, because I'm thinking to myself, 
man, if I don't get in a game, you know, you look at the baseball card, there's going to be nothing there. And so I'm figuring I got to get a chance. So I'm going to go down and fight to see if I can get in the lineup. The game's kind of out of hand. And he goes, okay, fine. And I think he's, he tried to say the Abreu doesn't get on, but he finally gives in and says, all right. So I get in the on-deck circle and I'm just like seeing the lights for the first time because I've been hitting off the old, you know, batting practice coaches and stuff. And Antonio Alfonseca is out there and the dude throws <laughs> gas, you know? Yeah, he's got six fingers. Yeah, six exactly. fingers, yep. Make a great uh, swimmer or piano player, but he was a hell of a pitcher. Yeah. And um, so I, I, you know, I'm getting loose and, and this is a big deal. You know, I'm like, this is it, you know? So I get up there and I end up working the count course to three and two. And I realize, okay, this is it. I'm either going to punch out or make it out, you know, but I, and I didn't want to walk, but I ended up getting a single and uh, I hit a thousand that year. So as far as, you know, I mean, there's, I've got a lot of other stories and stuff like that, but that one kind of from a perspective of being a player, it always kind of stands out for me. It was like, that was my, my biggest at bat, you know, the chance to, to uh, hit a thousand and I ended up hitting a thousand that year. So that's wow. pretty good. Very nice. uh, but you know how it is. If we're drinking beers, I'm going to come up with just a story that I hadn't thought of in five years that, you know, it's well, I, I how about get, you. I should have gave you go to the, uh, when I was writing the book, I, I, I was scouting for the Padres. So I was kind of walking around and be everybody up in the press box and I'd go, look, I'll see you tomorrow, 24 hours notice, you know, think about it. And some of them, some of them would, you know, boom right away. Um, you know, I, I, for me, I don't know. You know what? I'd have to run to uh, getting um, about eight mailboxes blown up in Baltimore when I blew, every time I blew a save. And Ripken, come, Ripken comes into the clubhouse one day and he brings in the indestructible mailbox. And it was like, you know, huge pole, bury it eight feet down in the cement, you know, the whole process. And I do that, blow a save about two nights later and somebody had taken a chainsaw to the pole and just took it. And I was like, All right, that's it. We're going PO box right now. Um, but no, I had a I had a couple of stupid, you know, me walking bonds with the bases loaded '98. Oh yeah, yeah, that was me. So um, that was on purpose, right? That was intentional. Yeah, we intentionally walked him. Yeah, we, we had Buck. Skipper, who who was the we manager? We had Buck on to talk about it a month ago. Still, Buck, still it was Buck. Buck. Yeah, yeah. So oh, that was man. Uh, yeah. So I've got a couple, you know, way off topic. I, you know, I've got one more, actually. We were in New York. We were playing, I was playing for the Tigers in 97, and we had a team party, and we rented out the, the I think it was the Hard Rock Cafe or something, or uh, one of those places, Planet Hollywood, yeah. And, um, you know, we got gag gifts for everybody, and, and I was losing my hair, and I was kind of fighting it. You know, I had a little bit of hair on top, but you could tell I was going bald. And, um, and so my gag gift was that hairspray, you know, the stuff that you can spray on and stuff. So I'm like, hell yeah, man, let's get, I, I'm down with this. So I spray this stuff on it, come back. Everybody's like, whoa, look at you. You've got hair. And I was, yeah, man, thanks. You know, and so the night goes on and we're, you know, we're having a good time. And then all of a sudden we end up cashing out. We're like, Hey, let's go to scores. So we all pile in the cabs and this is this, you know, the ritzy fritzy strip joint in New York. And uh, I get to scores and all of a sudden, man, it starts to get warm in there. And all of a sudden the guys start laughing at me and I'm like, what, what? And they're going, so I go to the bathroom and I got this crap running down my face, you know, like this black uh, hair <laughs> grease, you know? 
And so that was good. I was a good sport about it, but yeah, it was pretty tough trying to get that stuff off. Once it gets on, it's like makeup. So I, you know, it kind of ruined the evening, but it was a good gag gift. It was definitely a good one. Oh, that's great. They understood the assignment there. Uh, I, I do want to ask you, and I'm sure you don't get asked about this very much. Um, the 1996 twins, did you guys, before Kirby goes down, expect to be pretty good that year because, you know, you bring in Molly and, you know, Kirby had a good 95 before it was prematurely ended by Denny Martinez. Uh, and again, to that 94 team, I mean, you guys were seven games under 500. That's pretty impressive for where you might have expected to be. Um, it feels like, you know, we talk about the nine, late 90s twins as all these horrible teams, but 94 was decent and 96 should have been pretty good, too. Yeah, I mean, I thought that we were making that that move with Molly, and uh, you know, Molly had a great year that year. He, hit, he really like, did. I want to say hit three forty or something as a forty year old. Three forty one, I think. Yep. Yeah, and um, he was amazing. He was a great teammate. Um, and then we had Aguilera as a closer. Brad Radke was was coming on the scene. Mm-hmm. Erickson, of course, was there. Um, we had some young younger pitchers. Herbeck. Uh, I think there was some thought that. You know, especially with like Knobloch too. He was a hell of a player back then. He could hit, man. Yeah, he was um, he had a crazy year too that year. I think uh, he had so. a double every game. It seemed like. Yeah, but yeah, uh, yeah there was some there was some hope. I think, and um, you know, just uh, I don't. How did we finish that year? What was our? I, I want to say you're like seventy eight and eighty four. That's me yeah. riffing right now. I'm going to look right now. You guys were seventy eight and eighty four. I remember that a boy. That a babe. Good memory. Yeah, I miss I missed you there. I was in uh, Minnesota '97 and Detroit '96, so we were. And I missed you in Detroit. I was in Detroit, and yeah, so we just missed each other. Yeah, yeah, we did. Tell me, uh, tell me a Kirby Puckett story. Yeah, I was gonna say a Kirby or a Herbie or both. We gotta have one of my favorite human beings. Yeah, yeah, me too. Um, okay, so we're in Boston, and Roger Clemens is pitching, and it's a day game, and the Rockets got the eye black on, and Kirby Puckett and the clubhouse in Boston. I'll never forget it. He said, sit back, relax, boys, and enjoy the fireworks. I'm about ready to take over. And he did. I mean, the dude went off. And it was just like, anything that he said he was going to do, he did. Back that up. When we were in spring training in 94, he shows up back in the old days, those guys, they didn't hit in the off season. They just showed up to spring training and put on the batting gloves and started hitting. They're all kind of overweight and chunky and out of shape. And us young guys were trying to, you know, we're trying to get in shape and fit and stuff. And so Puckett, he goes in the clubhouse, gets changed, puts on his gear. He's getting ready to hit. Has not hit since September the year before. Decides he's going to just put on his batting gloves and start hitting off a curveball machine. Dude, he's on the curveball machine and he's missing every single pitch and I mean this is no joke and it's almost like is this guy done I'm thinking to myself he can't hit you know and he's swinging and miss swinging and miss swinging and miss and uh no problem he didn't seem to really care and just finally threw down the bat and walked away and um we have a game in like I don't know a week we're playing against this uh, team from Japan they come in and man first pitch the Japanese pitcher throws him hanging curveball boom homer over the center field fence the guy was amazing. And I try to tell people stories about him. And the one thing that, that impressed me most about Kirby Puckett was his fan appeal. No matter if we were in Cleveland, uh, Milwaukee, who was a huge rival, or Oakland, or New York, wherever, when they announced Kirby Puckett, 
everybody kind of gave him a little clap or sometimes a big cheer. You know, it was almost like you can't help but love the guy. Mm -hmm. He would sprint on and off the field. He would run hard to first base every single time. When there was a ground ball to second, we were playing the Orioles and Cal would come across the middle of the field and would be dragging his knuckles on the ground, trying to take out Puckett and Puckett would just absolutely go in as hard as he could. And then they both crash and fall and get up and pat each other on the back, you know, stuff like that. Puckett would, I don't know if you remember when you're in Baltimore, but Puckett, every time he would see Cal, Hey, just take one day off, man. Just one day off. He'd be yelling at Cal, you know, and Cal's like, come on, man. That's not going to help. Yeah, I can only imagine the stories you have about Cal. I mean, wow. Yeah, it's the same thing. But, I mean, I just, I, I, you know, puck it just a little bit around the batting cages. And every time I'd face him, it was a nightmare because it, it was Vladimir Guerrero with, you know, better batting average, same kind of pop, you know, get him 0-2 real quick and then throw a breaking ball that is – 59 feet six inches and he gets out there and hooks it down the left field line i'm just sitting there going no 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 you did not wow. yeah you know what i mean it was like well, you're making me throw this thing 58 feet to see if you'll swing it's like it unbelievable how good he was matt yeah matt can we get one more question before we get you out of here yeah for sure so what i want to know is you know we talk a lot about what 90s baseball but how would your career be different if you would have played in the era where they have everything available to them now not only the stuff you're dealing with but uh data analytics um the good and the bad you know a lot of guys who played in your era you know we see jeff fry who was on the show a couple weeks ago lament a lot of what's going on in this era but uh, i think there's good and bad the more you know the the more equipped you are to play maybe you're a better player because you know you can and can't do certain things but how would your career be different if you were playing right now like what do you think you'd be better at what do you think would be different um open-ended question Good one. Yeah. So, I mean, offensively, I don't know if I might've been a better hitter because I think my swing was pretty choppy and kind of into out, you know, out to in sort of a singles hitter. Mm -hmm. I might've had a better idea of how the swing should work. Cause I don't think coaches, well, I know they, they didn't really teach hitting when we were there. They just kind of were there to give you flips and stuff like that. So I think I'd have a better understanding on how to hit, but catching wise, it would have affected me because my skills were about blocking and I had quick feet and I could throw really well. And now they've taken that and they've flipped it to where throwing doesn't really matter as much anymore and blocking doesn't matter as much. And they're being measured on their ability to steal Receive. pitches. So Receive. they're becoming less uh, well-rounded as a catcher. And I think mm -hmm. that would have affected me just because I had more intangibles and things that help keep me in the lineup um, as opposed to just stealing pitches and being able to, you know, uh, work with pitchers so but I don't know I mean I would have found a way I imagine I would have I don't know it's just I, my love for the game has been through the roof ever since I was five I wanted to be a big leaguer and um, you know I've been I've been involved in baseball ever since even when I stopped managing you know I managed for seven years too professionally and right. I coached in the big leagues for a year and so you know I worked for 10 different big league teams and for 25 years I was in the in the game and I still dream about it I still miss it I still miss the camaraderie and that's why I enjoy being on your show. I, thanks for inviting me. Yeah. Um, just to talk to Oli and here's, you know, just to, you know, I've never met you before, but you know, I've always had a lot of respect for you and just the way you went about your game. You were, like I said, your mound presence was, was pretty special. You know, you had that, that disposition. We couldn't really tell if you were, how you were feeling, you know what I mean? Whereas a lot of guys, they kind of, 
you can see how their mind, their attitude and their body language changes and things like that. So, but thank you. Yeah. 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 No, it's an honor. So hypothetically, you'd answer the phone if somebody called though, like you'd, you'd love to get back into it that way. Oh, I don't know. Um, it would just depend on the role being managing when yeah. I managed, I was, I was sort of in that last stage of where managers could kind of do that, what they wanted to do. Yeah. Um, it would be difficult for me to, to manage if there were these, you know, having to read all the charts and, and everything has to be yeah. done from yeah. what somebody in the front office is telling you to do. Right. I don't know if that would be, but, you know, I think coaching and mentoring and, um, you know, teaching little things about the game that are being lost in the fact that most of the guys like me are not being called. They're not, they're fact they're getting spit out right now. So I'm afraid that the game is losing some of that, that luster, that beauty of, of that was being passed down. Like you only, I'm sure you learned from guys like from way before, like I've learned, you know, all the stuff that they tell you, like Jimmy Pearsall, I would learn from him. And, um, you we know, mentioned Jim him last week. Even, we mentioned yeah, Jimmy I mean, Pearsall last week, Pierce strikes out. Wow. He, he was such a beauty, you know, Pearsall, we learned so much from him in the Cubs organization. And, you know, we all thought he was kind of, he was crazy. He would say some things that was certainly mm-hmm. inappropriate, especially in these days and ages, but or this day and age. Um, but still we respected him and we listened to him and, and a lot of the stuff that he said, I mean, hell, he played, alongside ted williams and played it for the red sox i mean so nowadays it seems like players that have had the experience are somehow being pushed away because it it just doesn't make sense to the folks that are making decisions they don't understand it they don't know what it feels like to get out there and compete i mean how do you get a guy out (laughs) you know how do you how do you figure out a way to make an adjustment at the plate and hit the ball the other way a few times before they stop shifting on you right it's just boggling, but yeah. Well, Anyways, I still love the game. It's just changed. Yeah. No, well, left, that, left a lot of meat on the bones that people are watching. Um, we didn't talk about Scott Erickson's no hitter. We didn't talk about the 1994 <laughs> season and Kent Herbeck, his career coming to an end with the. No, uh, we can, let's talk about that. That's important. Well, know, I don't, I don't want to sure. change you. I mean, we're in overtime. No, right that's now. okay. That's okay. okay. We're good. We're so good. We're actually, yeah. so, and I okay. don't want to. Yeah, go ahead, please. I'm good. I just didn't want to. Uh, misuse your Scott time. Erickson's no hitter. So yeah. funny story, funny give, story. Give, give it to us. I met Scott Leyes in Plymouth, Minnesota, where I, where I lived before this, I managed a UPS store. And uh, I said, Oh, Scott Leyes, I'm a big fan. And I told this story on a show recently, that when guys who were not stars, but were big leaguers are recognized, sometimes they give you a look like, Oh, do you just know I'm a big leaguer, but you don't know anything about me? What, well, well, Oli said he's impressed because he just likes that people are, are that with it that much. But what I said was in the first inning, you caught a screaming line drive for one of the first outs of Scott Erickson's no hitter. And he looks right at me and he goes, Billy Spires. And from that point on, we were just wow. like this. So, um, yeah, I was eight years old when you guys played that game. I had it on a VHS. I probably watched it 300 times. Um, I could remember the like, Treasure Island Casino and Tires Plus ads. I had that game memorized. I still talk to Dick Bramer about it. Um, he actually lives oh, in the wow. same city. He lives in the same city I live in, which is kind of cool. Um, you're, you're talking to somebody who was a crazed Twins fan starting in 1993. <laughs> now I cover nice. the team, so I'm not as much of a fan. But um, that game to me is one of the first vivid memories I have of like, you know, this is this is what it's all about. No hitters and 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 trying to you know, finish those off and, and just being a bulldog like Scott Erickson was that night. 
Yeah, well, funny you should say that. When I was just recently in Arizona, a fan of uh, a teammate of mine came up and actually had two ticket stubs to that game and gave me one of the ticket stubs wow. to really? the no-hitter game. Yeah, it was pretty special. Um, it was weird. You know, he, he wasn't – he didn't have much control or command that night. He was working his fastball and his slider. He was shaking me off a lot. Uh, he was a bear to work with. He was hard to work with. You couldn't talk to him between innings. Um, but at, after about the fifth inning or during the fifth inning, I thought, man, something, something special's happening here. Cause like you said, the ball that Leis caught, um, you know, there were some other plays in there and Becker everything caught, just kind of seemed to go our way. Becker caught one to start the game. And then, um, Herbeck had one that he kind of kicked back and forth. And then he made the play at first on his own, a three, you, uh, yes. that was and the hat, his hat kind of got a little twisted, maybe yeah. I mean, a little discombobulated. Keep in mind too. I feel like he's the underappreciated defensive first baseman of that era because, um, I don't think he ever won a gold glove because there was Mattingly and all those guys, but boy, did he deserve a, a bigger look than he got. He loved it. He used to tell me, Wally, anybody can play first base, but not too many people can play it well. And he was right, man. And he was a good first baseman. He had all yeah. the moves, great glove. Uh, but no, Erickson was, he was just effectively wild and, um, had his fastball and his, his sinker and his slider. He was just sinker slider, sinker slider. And then seventh inning, eighth inning, and then the last hitter was Greg Vaughn, who's from my hometown. Mm-hmm. And um, that was a scary you play, know, we, too. Dude, that was, that was, I <laughs> thought we had it. I raised my hands like this, and all of a sudden, uh, Mears and Alex Cole go running for it. I'm thinking, oh no. And then Cole ended up with it. Yeah. And Mears goes rolling, and uh, that was it. Yeah, it was fun. The only oh. thing that kind of, I look back on it, kind of sucked for me is that I'm expecting the pitcher to come to the catcher, and we're going to celebrate. But Herbeck blocks me out, and Erickson goes for Herbeck and gives him the hug. And I'm like the, the last man out. Yeah, T Rex boxing yeah. you out there. He boxed me out. Yeah, oh, but, no, great. That was my seriously. That was my career highlight. And um, you ask any catcher, you know, a no hitter in the big leagues is pretty special. And I was there for Milton's no hitter. Yeah, you you were on the one. I was same on the stadium, other team. but you were uh, you didn't <laughs> yeah. that. I have to be Angels. honest, and I don't mean to be a jerk. That Angels lineup might be one of the worst that was ever no hit. Don't you think? One of the worst lineups that was ever. It was. It was. It was just. It was, it was very much like a getaway day lineup. I know it was a Saturday morning. It was a getaway day. Yeah, wasn't it? Or was I mean, it, it was like game? it was like Troy Gloss, and then it was guys like Orlando Palmero, right. and um, even the guy who caught. I was expecting to see that you caught that day, and it was uh, Brett catch. something. Hemphill. Hemphill. Yeah, a guy. I, I, mm-hmm. And a guy, I knew everybody playing in the big leagues then. I do not mm-hmm. remember Brett Hemphill. Um, I don't remember if like Jeff Devannon, I might be thinking a little too late. Yeah, like, you might be right. Yeah. Um, yeah just, uh, and, right. and again, I'm not trying to say these guys weren't good, but it was right. a very much a uh, September when you're 57 and 82 lineup. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess I don't yeah, know. Yeah, you know, I, that team, now I that feel like team a jerk. also the Angels. No, no, it's okay. The Angels team, or, or, Orlando Palmero got thrown out of a game. I think Tim Sheeta was the umpire. But he, uh, after a called third strike, dropped the bat at home plate and walked away, and she'd have threw him out. But what he didn't know is we were in such a bad hitting slump with the Angels that we decided to use one bat. So we were sharing a bat. <laughs> and so, so he got reinstated back in the game, and the bat ended up, I think, in the Hall of Fame. So, yeah, we were trying to wow to, uh, to change matters. When you mentioned Orlando, that made me think of that time he got tossed and then let back. Oh, you guys man. had no hit using the same bat? No, it was a different story. It was a different oh, game. Okay. <laughs> that would have been the worst. <laughs> okay, that's going uh, to be a classic. I, yeah. I, I do have the lineup here. Uh, Jeff Devannon, so I remember correctly there. Uh, Orlando Palmero, Todd Green playing left field. 
Yeah, Todd Green, the catcher, playing left field, batting third. Um, Troy Gloss, who was obviously very good. Steve Decker, Matt Luke, Brett Hemphill, Trent Durrington, and Andy Sheets. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. I mean, I feel, I feel bad that I said that they weren't very good. But, no, uh, but you, you have a point. You have was, a point. It Joe, was that Joe Madden's team, too? Were you playing for Joe Madden at that time? Uh, Terry Collins, I think, was managing at that point. Okay, because I know Joe took over at some point, or was that the beginning of the end of the season? Yeah, Terry resigned, and uh, that was at the end of the year, and that was in 99. Am I right with that? Yeah. Yeah, and then then we hired – the Angels hired Sosha, and and Madden became the bench bench coach in 2000. I think you guys were playing early because the Gopher football team was playing that night. Didn't we used to play morning games there, like 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock, I remember? Uh, Was was there ever anything that – First pitch that day was early, like an 11 – well, this is noon, but I feel like it was 11, but still like super early because the Gophers had yeah. to play that night. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well. And I think I remember playing in Minnesota where there was even games earlier than that. Cal Ripken, when he come up to the plate, every single first at bat, good morning, he'd say. First time we were playing the Orioles, I was catching in 94 and he comes up. It's a night game. He goes, good morning. And I'm like, oh, that's Cal Ripken. I go, and I didn't know what to say, but I did. I paused and I went, it's a night game. And he goes, oh, every, every game feels like a day game here to me. And I can only imagine. I mean, he played, you know, every 2000 and some. But, yeah, you look up at the Metrodome, you don't know <laughs> if it's day or night. Oh, did yeah. you, oh, did you hate the dome? That's walking out of those, you know, that or the kingdom. You walk out. Yeah. And it's like mm-hmm. it's still light outside. Right. You know. No, I didn't really hate it. It was, uh, it was for me, it was hard to see as a hitter. It didn't have yeah. much of a backdrop. But a lot of guys loved hitting there. I certainly didn't like the pop-ups. It was hard on on your legs as a player, you know, going from turf to grass. Um, but Hey, it was a big leagues and it was the, it was the Metrodome and you had the baggy and right. You know, there was certainly the first year we were there. I think they took down the plexiglass. Yes, they that did. 94 the plexiglass yep. came down. Yep. Yeah. Did a uh, last, last one. I promise you mentioned you were still playing baseball. Are you still crouching? Or are you playing in the field? No, I only catch. And uh, okay. it's kind okay. of all I want to do. I don't like playing on the other side of the field at all. No, I like being you- this looking that way. Yeah. That's what I love yeah. about the game. The defense has the ball and the catcher gets to look the different direction than everybody mm-hmm. else. It's unlike any other sport. It's the greatest sport that uh, is available on God's green earth. But uh, Hey, thank yes, you so much. For, thank, thank you so you, much Matt. for hanging out with us today and, and going into overtime. My pleasure. That was, that was great. Awesome. Matt, that was awesome. Holy, yeah. Great. Awesome. Thanks guys. That was well, fun. In, hey, the um, invitation is always there. Just uh, whenever you're ready, come on. Yeah. Sounds good. Sounds a lot of good. Meat left Great on topics, the guys. Uh, Thank good you. Stuff, guys. Great well, hey, job. that that's uh, that's it for me, Brandon Warren, Greg Olson, Matt Walbeck. Check us out again next week. This is that '90s baseball pod powered by Access Twins. We'll catch you. Peace.